millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm here with Gary. We're actually in a Premier Inn uh, Travel Travel Lodge Travellers Fair Sausage Room, aren't we? Uh, Because we're at a conference. We're at the Great War Group Conference, Pete. We are. That's right. And uh, Gary has come down to my room to record this podcast. Not the first time you've invited me down to your room, Pete. It's the first time I've said yes, though. Yeah. Uh, It's been disappointing so far. Still, we can try again in another 10 minutes. Uh, now, uh, what we're doing today, we're doing a serious topic, so that's uh, possibly why we're a little bit cheerful now. Um, we're doing the Royal Naval Division and the Battle of the Ankh. November 1916. That's right, that's right. Now, should we put in a bit of background? Uh, do you want to do this or shall I? You, you do it. You just what, Tell us a bit about it. Who are they? So the, the, the Royal Naval Division was formed by Winston Churchill, sent to Antwerp, entirely... <laughs> buggered up there because they weren't ready for anything and had to retreat, lost a whole brigade almost, and then they fought at, uh, at, uh, at Gallipoli. So that's what that's part of what I know. Now, what do you know about them? Well, it, it, although called a, a division, they uh, they weren't really a division because they, they hadn't had uh, artillery up until this point, or proper artillery support, and the R&D was evacuated from under the noses of the Turks in January 1916, Pete. Yeah, not 1915. No, January 1916. Now, commanding the division was the august figure of a career Royal Marine officer, Major General Archibald Paris. Now, he'd commanded them right from their inauguration. Now, for the most part, Paris was popular amongst the men of the R&D. He was seen as a protector of the naval traditions that had endured within the division, despite their land fighting role. However, in May 1916, the War Office took over the R&D which was to be transported to fight on the Western Front. Now, they had to, it was going to be reconstituted as the 63rd brackets, very important in the army brackets, I believe. You were often in brackets. Royal Naval Division. Uh, and uh, it, the, the, it's, it's, uh, it was brought up to strength by, they added an orthodox infantry brigade, although one of the battalions isn't orthodox. So this is the 190th brigade. Which battalion do you think I've got my eye on as not particularly orthodox? Well, you're talking about the Honourable Artillery. Yeah, they're not exactly orthodox, are they? <laughs> no. And, uh, Who was, else? Who well, else you had the 1st Battalion Honourable Artillery Company. Fine body of men. 4th Bedfordshire Regiment, 
the seventh Royal Fusiliers, and the tenth Dublin Fusiliers. Now, what happened to the uh, the old, the two naval brigades that were with them before? Well, they were imaginatively retitled as the 188th Brigade, which was the first and second Royal Marine Light Infantry, RMLI. Yes, uh, the Anson and Howe battalions, and the 189 Brigade Hawk, which was the Drake. No, uh, it's not Hawk. That's a mistake by me. I do apologise. Yeah. Oh, so the 189th Brigade, yeah, yeah. which was the Hawk, Drake, Hood and Nelson Battalions. It helps if I pretend that you haven't made a mistake, Pete. It does. Thank you for pretending that I hadn't made a mistake, which we won't, rec- we won't mention it. But it would take a, a lot more than this to turn the uh, conglomeration of battalions into a real division capable of serving on the Western Front. That's right, because in Gallipoli, they were just infantry and they were sailor infantry as well to boot. Uh, what's the biggest thing? What is it that a division needs, really, really needs, if it's going to be a, a proper division? Well, as I said at the, at the start, the of prime importance was the fact that artillery was at last allotted as an integral part of the division. The 63rd Divisional Artillery, consisting of the 315th, 317th, and 223rd Field Artillery Brigades. So each, well, that's a big contribution. That makes them, uh, that increases the firepower a fair bit, doesn't it? But something else, some, something else that's been changing since 1914-15, what else do they get? Well, they recognise those changes uh, that were uh, in the machine gun tactics. And uh, so what they did was they banded together the Vickers machine guns into the 188, the 189th, 190th Brigade Machine Gun Companies. So that's giving a much harder tactical punch of concentrated Vickers gun fire. Uh, how, how are the battalions compensated? Because they, they're for local, very local support. Well, they're, they're issued with the Lewis guns and the Stokes mortars. That means that uh, many of them may have to be sent on courses to familiarise themselves with the use of these new weapons. So it's, it's now the Western Front's a big change. It is really, it's different from Gallipoli. Gallipoli had its own problems uh, dysentery, all sorts of things. Uh, the, the fact you never got a rest, you couldn't get away from the enemy. But the Western Front's uh, just different. And it, it's uh, in some ways, it's a land of plenty. And you're going to be Captain Douglas Gerald of the Hawk Battalion. Now, he's a right character. Uh, after the war, he formed the Right Book Club, just in case you... Uh, uh, which didn't mean it was uh, right on, man. It, the right, as in very right wing but he's an interesting and in my view he's a great writer he's very funny and you're going to be him then came the first revelation of what had been going on while we were serving oh sorry starving in gallipoli we had come to a land of plenty from tip to toe we were re-equipped new transport new machine guns new rifles new uniforms new generals at gallipoli we'd made our own bombs out of jam tins in France, we were given whole cases of new and deadly bombs, not more than 10% defective to play with. France was not the East, we were told proudly, and again and again. Everything had to be done properly or not at all. No hurried rush to the line, but a steady progress of training behind the lines, with courses for officers and instructional visits to the line. Then, in due course, we might be allowed to hold a small piece of the line of our own, but only if we were very, very good. Now, there's a lot of attitude in that. Are you picking up attitude? And that's what they like, these Royal Navy. They're very funny, uh, 
but they've also think they know it all. They, they think that all this extra training's not necessary. But the Lewis guns, the Stokes mortars, the Mills bombs, I mean, you, funny enough, two of them, you might have almost trained in yourself in your August Army service, but um, they increase the firepower, but everybody has to learn how to do it. How, the new tactics, they've got to do all that. Because is, is, is a division a thing on its own in the Army, do you think? No, I mean... <laughs> It's essential the whole of the R and D engage in understanding the, the the new tactics and methods of working as part of a huge organisation. The BEF towards a common aim. Now, sadly, it's undeniable that many of the R and D officers resented the implication that they had much to learn, as you've hinted at, uh, and adopted a somewhat negative and sneering attitude. And I'm going to be Captain Douglas Gerald. Typecast, negative and sneering. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> the attack as practised in pre-war days, move forward in lines. Now, the word had gone forth that movement must be in waves. Those who were ignorant of this development were indeed barbarians, though the difference between a line and a wave was to the crude civilian mind, which predominated still in the Hawk Battalion, none too great. Moreover, we had retained a pathetic faith in the value of platoon and company drill, and in the rifle as a weapon. We now learnt that physical training was the only thing conducive to really sound, up-to-date discipline, and that the bomb was the only infantry weapon of serious military account, at least behind the lines. We did not take these sweeping judgments too seriously. Now, the negative attitudes, again, they have to be trained in the Mills bomb, they have to be trained in the Stokes Mort, they have to be trained in the Lewis gun, of course they do. Uh, what do you think senior officers thought of the R&D? Well, that's going to make them... <laughs> deeply suspicious of them, isn't it? Let's face it. And and to many, the experience of which the R and D were so proud was was a small relevance to the real war. So they were in a sideshow. Exactly. And 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 everybody thought at that time that the the real war was on the Western Front. And the, 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 there's a, an attitude. The Western Front. They perhaps uh, people like Haig didn't perhaps realise how deadly the Turks could be. They thought they were nothing compared to the Germans. Now I'm not making. We're not going to say that, are we? Because the Turks are bloody good at Gallipoli. No, we have a, we have a lot of respect for the Turkish uh, forces, particularly on the defence. Uh, but the Western Front was the main theatre of the war. Now in mid June, the R&D from 1960. 16, I keep getting that date in my head. 1916. The R&D moves up into 4th Corps area and they're, 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 there's a comprehensive programme of platoon, company, battalion and brigade training. Uh, the units are being attached, sent to the front for trench familiarisation, attached to other units. And, and um, the, they, they're formally reborn as the 63rd Division on the 20th of July 1916. And they go into the line just north of uh, Vimy. Uh, it's a quiet sector. They stay there gaining experience until they move back into the training area in mid-September. And then they move up to join 5th Corps, part of the 5th Army, uh, that's Goff's Army, on the Somme uh, on the 7th of October. Now, this, this is, this, what, what do you think this is like? Because uh, their previous experience, they'd never had anything like this, had they? No, this is their moment of truth, isn't it? It's the real introduction to the hell that was the Western Front. Here, they found warfare that's totally dominated by the artillery. At Gallipoli, a few shells a day had been something to remark on. On the Western Front, the shells fired could be innumerable. Innumerable. One, two, three, lots. Innumerable. That's very good, very good, Gary. Uh, I think a lot of them were actually stunned. Uh, I mean, they might sneer, but they're stunned by the sheer scale of it all. Um, but uh, 
they're still not keen on being a cog in the machine, are they? Um, um, and 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 Gerald, he, he says something that's outstandingly stupid. And you, uh, well, it's excellent that you're doing. We you really, you're so you're sneering. So far, I've called you sneering, and now I'm calling you outstandingly you're stupid. Suggesting you're suggesting we're in typecast. <laughs> yeah, you really are fitted, but but you're not fitting in. What does Gerald? What are you going to say as Captain Douglas Gerald Hawk Battalion? An atmosphere of over-elaborated, brusque inefficiency pervaded the hinterland of slaughter. Too many men, too many officers, far too many generals, and a thousand times too many jacks in office. Railway transport officers, town majors, assistant provost marshals, traffic control officers, laundry officers, liaison officers, railway experts, and endless seas of mud. Now that's just sheer stupidity and an inability to understand the reality of of army warfare on the Western Front. Well, they can't function as a fighting force without that. No. This is a... Thank goodness Rob Thompson will never hear this because he would just go berserk. Uh, I hope he's not in the next room. He might overhear us because he is in this hotel. Um, uh, yeah, th- these jacks in office are the people who actually get the people to the front line, who keep them fed, supplied, everything else. Stupid. Stupidity. Now, a bit of a disaster. Is it a disaster? I don't know. What happens on the 14th of October? Major General Paris is on a, a, a reconnaissance of the trenches. And what happens to him, Gary? Well, a German shell bursts next to his party. Now, Paris was badly wounded in the explosion and he lost his left leg. And his war is, in fact, over. And what does uh, Gerald think of that? Uh, He's not sneering now, is he? He had commanded them in their most unfortunate as well as in their most successful adventures. And he had never failed them. But he was something more in the eyes of the division than a respected commander. He was an institution. He was the last relic of the days when the division had fought under orders from the Admiralty. He was the last bulwark between the division and the army. Yeah, there's a lot of nonsense in there. It sounds as if it dates back sort of 300 years. Yeah, but you know uh, what it's, he's saying. You it's can a understand cu- it. It's a couple of years, so is what he's talking about. And uh, anyway, d- 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 does Paris die? No, very happily he survives his wounds and he, and he lives on until 1937. Uh time you mean uh, no <laughs> no to the year 1937 i thought we made he died just after the show no. silly old me now the replacement um why do you think they chose this particular man major general cameron shoot why did they pick him why 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 gary because they why? knew he'd make a good poem yes that could have been one reason <laughs> no i mean they picked him because he he was an upright regular soldier and he he would uh, not be expected to tolerate any slapdash nonsense from the uh, unrulier elements still working within the now division. you were a regular soldier would you have not tolerated any slapdash nonsense i was up to the slapdash <laughs> nonsense Oh, you're one of the unrulier elements, weren't you? Yeah. Now, it doesn't take long for sparks to fly from this combustible mixture of the uh, louche intelligentsia and their new martinet commander. Well, do you know what? You can see why. I I, I love the, the, the 63rd Division, the Royal Naval Division, but they're bloody irritating, aren't they? If you look at them, they're, they're soldiers. They're fighting in a military land campaign under army command, and they affect all these stupid naval traditions. And, and people like Shute, who's a bad... He's a, it's funny, the number of generals who are bad-tempered. 
Um, he just finds it bloody stupid and preposterous. Uh, well, well, give us some differences then. Well, there's, it's, for example, the ranks were different and you had the additional factor of so, the... leading seamen, ordinary yeah, seamen. And, and they're ah. the uh, senior service and that complicated matters. Pay rates were also different. And uh, both officers and men affected naval parlance at every possible opportunity, referring to taking leave ashore. Just taking leave ashore, sir. The galley, the sick bay, and the wardroom, where, horror of horrors, <laughs> the king's health was drunk sitting down in the time honoured naval manner. That's because they couldn't stand up on them. Do you remember when we went on the victory? Now, in addition, men were, even, men were even granted permission to grow beards, which was in stark contrast to the army, who were only allowed moustaches. Well, that's another. That's, that, that became a really totemic thing later on. The war of somebody's beard. Codric, Codric, Codrics. Anyway, um, so uh, they, they, these, these things, it, they don't matter much, but they sort of become... It's like they're, they're, they're a dividing line. Well, to shoot, it's a bloody-mindedness and, and a refusal to conform to the norm. And, and Would that have mattered? Well, yeah, yeah I mean... Why it, does it matter? Well, to, he's, <laughs> he sees it that the division thinks that they're, they're, they're better than they were. And, you know, we've had this discussion in other podcasts. They're soldiers. They need to behave as soldiers, and he needs to know that they're going to. So what does he do? Well, he defends on them like a bloody whirlwind. Well, I was close to swearing. A bloody, he's that's not swearing, whirlwind. And his inspections on the front line were the stuff of legend. He, 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 he just considered that they were, they were, when I say shit, that's one of the things he most bothered about. Uh, the, the latrines, field hygiene, uh, basic trench management. Uh, this wasn't helped by the fact that at the time he was making his inspections, the weather was really bad and it was, uh, the, the, tren- the trenches are just muddy messes. Uh, and any, any unit would, to be fair, have struggled. Um, but the officers don't help. Um, they, they deliberately wind shoot up. Now this is awfully funny. At, uh, and men with these officers at their public schools. It really, you know, great fun winding up beak, beaky or whatever. But this is, this is a great one here. And the, the sad thing is I find this hilarious, but it, it is bad for military discipline. And you're going to tell the story of how, uh, Lieutenant Commander George Peckham, who was one of the worst, he was a drunken bum. Wouldn't he be Lieutenant Commander if he's naval rank? No. Oh, just it's checking. not American, maybe. Just checking. <laughs> and Ger- Douglas Gerald, Douglas Gerald records a typical incident, and this is on a, a shoot inspection of the front line, well, near the front line. I was standing in a communication trench talking to George Peckham about everything in the world except the war when we were surprised by the general's arrival. Foolishly, we were standing in a blind corner and there was no avenue of escape. A rain of questions descended, which we were fortunately able to answer, and all seemed to be going well. Alas, the general had a habit, when standing still, of striking the ground rather forcibly with the point of his walking stick. Our trenches were innocent of duck boards and more than ankle-deep in mud. The general's stick went in deeper and deeper, till suddenly it struck something hard. Instantly, there was an ominous bristling. After much kicking and scraping, a perfectly good box of small arms ammunition was revealed. Ammunition boxes lining the communication trenches, the general exclaimed, (laughs) drafting out loud another report to Corps headquarters on the iniquities of the Navy. Good 
God, sir, cried George Peckham with a credible imitation of uh, pietes- pietistic but tolerant horror. I believe you're right. He stood looking at the general, who was now quite white with rage, as if he were a lunatic to be humoured, and then, on some pretext or other, shown off the premises. And you were deliberately standing there trying to conceal it from me. It's a damn disgrace. Good God, sir, says George with a broad smile. If I'd known you were coming, this is the last place on earth where I should have been standing. I think that's brilliant. It's it's very funny, but who's right? Who's right? And the answer is shoot. Shoot is in the right. Definitely. Um, And not at all pietistic. No, that is a terrible word. Uh, so, so what happened? So, was that, was it just a one-off box? No, I mean that incident triggers a major rouse. The whole communication trench proved to have been paved with ammunition boxes, <laughs> and uh, Gerald believed that they'd been dumped there by the army. But of course, Shoot was still furious. He, you know, he was also exceptionally critical of the somewhat lax latrine arrangements of the Hawk Battalion, fearing. An outbreak of dysentery. No, you'd have thought if anybody had known about dysentery, it would be the Royal Naval Division after what they'd suffered at Gallipoli. You would have thought so. Uh, and <laughs> they, within their ranks, they had uh, a, the resident humorist, Captain A.P. Herbert, and he saw this uh, as an opportunity to prove that the pen was mightier than the enraged general. And you're going to read uh, a, a, a ditty, shall we say, yeah, that we, he penned. It, it looks familiar to me, this one. The general inspecting the trenches exclaimed with a horrified shout, I refuse to command the division which leaves its excretia about. But nobody took any notice. No one was prepared to refute that the presence of shit was congenial compared with the presence of shoot. And certain responsible critics made haste to respond to his words, observing that his staff advisers consisted entirely of turds. For shit may be shot at odd corners, and paper supplied there to suit. But a shit would be shot without mourners if somebody shot that shit shoot. (laughs) You gave me that to read. I did. It's very funny. But as you mentioned earlier, shoot is actually right. He's right about almost everything. If if you're taking sides in this and you see books about the R&D, I love the R&D, but books take against shoot and I don't understand it because he's right and he makes a big difference to them. Uh, He reports it's all to his superiors and uh, he tries to get senior officers replaced, tries to get experienced army officers in. He tries to get a grip on the division. Surely this is a good general. Grip. Isn't grip what's important, Gary? Yeah, but... At golf, do you not find that you're helped with (laughs) with your grip? No, but, I mean, it's all a bit too late because for the moment, nothing's done uh, because the division's finally been earmarked for uh, real action. Well, in the sum, it's going to go over the top, isn't it? It's been decided the 5th Army, uh, Goff's 5th Army, would attack on either side of the River Ancre, uh, um, uh, assisted by units of the 4th Army. That's Rawlinson's, our old friend, your old friend, Rawlinson. You're a personal friend of his, I believe. Uh, 63rd Division would attack in the Valley of the Ancre, pushing towards the village of Beaucourt. To their left, Bowman, Hamill and Sir Ridge was to be assaulted by the 51st Division. To their right, the Saint-Pierre-Divion village overlooking the Ankh purposes would be attacked by 39th Division. Uh, now, Shoot demonstrates a real professional attitude. What does he introduce that was... What, how does he show his experience? 
Well, he's aware that the trenches in the Ancre Valley were unfit for purpose as assembly and jumping off trenches. Now, that had to be put right. It was hard, dangerous graft. The question was, was it worth the effort? Time would tell, Gary. Time. It would indeed. The original intended Z day was the 23rd of October, but the continuation of, uh, of the weather... <laughs> caused repeated I, I wanted you to have to say exorable. <laughs> <laughs> it pissed down. It pissed down. Uh, now, the Hawk Battalion, inspected by the commander in the, uh, the chief of the BEF, one General Sir Douglas Hiag. Hague. Um, uh, for, uh, they, that's the old saying, we were about to die, salute you. If the king or Hague came, <laughs> you, you had it. Um, uh, Gerald was surprised by the close attention Hague paid to them, uh, and he was unaware that Hague also, as a professional Western Front uh, Army officer, has deep suspicions for the, the former Royal Naval Division. Um, uh, and uh, he doesn't see it. Remember he referred to Paris's successes with the R&D. What successes at Gallipoli? That's what Hague was thinking. Um, so, uh, and, and, and he's none aware of how good the Turks were as well. So, uh, during this inspection, though, our favourite, or my favourite, Lieutenant Commander George Peckham, once again excels himself. And who better to tell the story than Gary in his role, the typecast role it now is, of uh, Captain Douglas Gerald of the Hawk Battalion. So Douglas Haig made no speeches but talked to all the officers and to most of the NCOs and forbore from all comment when George Peckham, who had been summoned at the 11th hour from the uh, Estimene, burst through a hedge to find the inspection of his company actually in progress. George proceeded to explain, after being introduced, that he was a Marine, the implication presumably being that he had only just returned from a long sea voyage and that nothing but wind and tide had made him late. Now, you see, again... This is brilliant humour. George Peckham's hilarious. Uh, and uh, Douglas Gerald has just made that hilarious. To me, that's just brilliant writing. You know, but who's in the right? I'll tell you what, if Hague would, hadn't been tolerant, there could have been a different... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. That's your outcome, Farrell. Yeah, I mean, less forgiving observers might well have sympathised with the senior army officers who had to put up with the feckless feckless drunks drunks uh, at such an important time. The attack is finally set for the 13th 13th of November. That's going to be Zed Day or Zed, yeah. And the men moved up into the lines. Fortunately, as they waited, they could lie up in the assembly trenches, which proved an inestimable value. So, again, Shoot was right. He was. Men like Murray were benefiting from Shoot's bloody-mindedness. Ordinary seaman Joe Murray of the Hood Battalion. And you're going to be him. I am. I'm not going to do a daft accent because there's, there's some nasty things coming. We had to line up in four waves, so we had to have four jumping-off trenches near enough. We were the first ones. Behind us was the Drake, and behind them was the Honourable Artillery Company. So when we got to our own front line, we had to count the trenches. One, two, three, four. That's the HAC. One, two, three, four. That's the Drake. And one, two, three, four. Four, that's the hood. So we know where we are. The attack was due at 5.45 the next morning. We'd got 14 hours to wait. Now, we've got a fair amount of time to wait before we can go to the pub tonight, two or three hours. And it seems quite a long time, doesn't it? 14 hours in a muddy, soaking trench. Well, for them, the night seems to last forever. Cold and wet, they're haunted by the uh, their prospect of survival or not. Well, they know they're going over the top. I don't know. And I'm going to be Joe Murray again. Joe was a wonderful man. He had. Br- uh, if any of you noticed the detail in this account, that is, this is not normal for oral history. History. This is just someone who had a weirdo memory, a fabulous memory. He says this. It must have been about midnight, but I saw someone come along. I thought to myself. Oh, blimey, who's that walking about in front here? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Seems to go and cock me. Normally you would fire anyone in front of me. <laughs> was an enemy unless you were warned. I heard this fellow talking and I find out it's Colonel Freiberg. He'd come along to inspect his troops before the attack. The generals do it ten miles away, quite safely. But Freiberg, of course they do, Joe. Then mind. But Freiburg, he was coming along. He went past me eventually and went on to see his old pal Kelly of B Company. Freiburg said to me, Oh, you here? Recognised him, you see. He was quite cheerful, wondering how we were getting on. Do try and get some sleep. Hmm. I wouldn't fancy it. Now, somebody else remembers this account, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, Freiburg himself oh, remembers encounters such as this as he makes his way forward. And you're going to be And I'm going to be Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Freiburg. You're the, the chap who got the DSO for swimming on that diversion at uh, Gulf of Saros, aren't you? Yes, and smothered myself in... Oh, oh well, in? not myself, actually. <laughs> I had to step over men the whole way. It was unnaturally quiet, and the men all seemed to be sleeping. But closer inspection showed them to be awake, lying with their heads on their arms, peering out into the night. One or two spoke, but the bulk seemed to be in another world. Kelly was in very high spirits, certain as he always was that the war would be over in the spring, and he came back to my headquarters in a shell hole for brigade time. 
which was to come th- through to us at midnight. Uh, he means uh, it's the watches, it's the setting of the watches. There had been some enemy shelling, but not on our sector. Otherwise, the night had passed in complete silence. At 5.15am, there was a slight stir all along the line. The ghost-like sound of thousands of invisible men sitting up and taking off their great coats. Now, a few men managed to get a little bit of sleep, but uh, and Joe Murray says this. About 5.30, most of us started getting warmed up a bit, dancing about quietly. That's what he says, the invisible stir, you know, the fabulous. Then we had to fix bayonets. There's always a noise with fixing bayonets, a clink, a metallic noise. So you put your tunic round it to deaden it. Listen to the detail, Gary, it's unbelievable. At 5.45, bang! 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 All of a sudden, behind us, I think there's more than one bang. I think there were lots of bangs. <laughs> the whole sky was red. Immediately afterwards, you could hear the shells going over your head. And really and truly, you could almost feel the shells. Then you heard the sound. The light was first, the shell was next, and then the sound. Wow. Now, to, to their left, as adjutant, Captain Douglas Gerald was with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Leslie Wilson and the rest of the Hawk Battalion headquarters as the last seconds ticked away. And I'm once more going to be Captain Douglas Gerald. I had my watch by me and it was the second hand that I was watching. Wilson, graver than I had ever seen him, was doing exactly the same. The horrible thing for us was that it was not our battle. In a matter of seconds, the 400 officers and men would have passed out of our knowledge and control. We were to go forward and establish our headquarters in the German front line as soon as should be occupied. Now, the hood uh, is on the right, the far right of this attack. And Freiburg watches his men go over the top. And you're going to be a Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Freiburg, Hood Battalion. Our 12 waves were now running hard to get clear of the enemy counter barrage, which we knew would fall on our assembly area in eight minutes. When the attack started, it was pitch dark and in addition, the scotch mist, the smoke and fumes from the bursting shells, didn't improve the visibility. While any illumination from the shower of enemy lights and the flashes from shell bursts was minimised by the thickness of the atmosphere. Some of our men were hit by our own shells, which they had risked to make certain of getting the trenches and dugouts before the enemy could recover from our bombardment. Everywhere was confusion. We were nearly choked by the acrid stink of cordite, while in the luminous mist all we could see were lines of hurrying figures whose arms, rigidly holding their rifles, gave them a wooden appearance. Now, Freiburg follows his men across uh, the uh, the battlefield, uh, and uh, you, you're going to describe what, what he sees as he goes forward. We passed the burning entrances of dugouts, which showed that the phosphorus bombs were taking effect. These dugouts were elaborate two-storied affairs with electric light and, in one case, a lift. It was in rushing a strong point at the entrance to one of these that Kelly was killed. Owing to our heavy casualties, it was never known really how it all happened, but it appears that someone on Kelly's left had missed the dugout entrance from which the enemy was starting to shoot. The situation was critical. Unless the strong point was captured at once, enemy machine guns would pop up everywhere. Hesitation would have endangered the success of the whole attack on our front. Kelly, being an experienced soldier, knew this quite as well, as he must have known the risk he was taking, when with the few men he had hastily gathered, he rushed the machine gun. 
A few of the men reached the position, but Kelly, with most of them, was killed at the moment of victory. Now, Kelly, he was uh, an Olympic oarsman, I think. He was a brilliant musician. You've encountered him in Gallipoli before. And there's a brilliant book about him, uh, which was written by the former editor of uh, Stand 2, whose name, Jonathan, John, uh, whose name's just evaded me. But it's a brilliant book, and I urge you all to buy it. Um, now, uh, the, 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 the Hood Battalion, they're, they're really sticking close to Creeping Barrage. That's quite experience of them. Uh, they, they've obviously learned something from the lessons, possibly because Freiburg is a brilliant officer. And so, by the way, was Kelly. Uh, they overwhelmed the German first-line defences in their sector. Um, and uh, and uh, here, this is the place where, in uh, 1st of July, it's, this had been a massacre in this very same place, hadn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it had repulsed the attacking 8th Corps with severe losses. On this occasion, they had far less machine guns to deploy and the artillery defensive fire was fatally late. Both machine guns and gunners were also hampered in their performance by the dense fog. The German resistance simply melts away. And you're going to be Captain Lionel Montague of the Hood Battalion. It was a weird sight, seeing the dim figures of the men advancing in waves through the mist, with little bursts of flame coming among them and lighting up the fixed bayonets. I speedily found myself with about 60 men and two platoons of the Drake Battalion, too far ahead, uh, having gone over the three lines without seeing them, although it bombed some uh, dugouts. We were right in our own barrage and suffered a few casualties from it. I felt rather lost, but fortunately recognised the station and station road. I knew that I had got too far ahead, but I did not like to bring the men back, as nothing could be more demoralising. I brought them back in two moves of 20 yards to get more behind our barrage. So he just falls back. He's got too far ahead, getting too close to the barrage. Meanwhile, the Hawk Battalion, they're facing something a little bit more serious. What are they facing? Well, it's it's called the Whaleback Redoubt, and it lies in between the German first and second lines. Now, Colonel Wilson and you, as Captain Douglas Gerald, you've got no idea what's happening in front of you, have you? No, and Captain Douglas Gerald says... We stood there for a quarter of an hour, and I remember turning to Leslie Wilson and saying, no one has come back. We wanted, of course, a message to say, quite comfortably, that we had captured the front line. Then we could have sent a message from our own notebooks, and everybody would have been pleased, and we should have gone forward to establish our report centre. That would have been charming, but it had just not happened, and there we were, lost in the fog of war. I love the word charming. That would have been charming. Loosh, you see. Uh, it's a ch- one of the challenges of command at this level, isn't it? Even at battalion level. Uh, if you don't know what's happening in front of you, every decision you take, is gonna, it could have a really serious consequence. But what do you base your decision on if you're getting no information coming back? Um, if you push on, you not only could be killed, but you lose control. The whole system of command and control is shot to buggery, to use a technical, technical R&D term. term. Uh, now, you're going to be Gerald again. Wilson was looking more and more troubled. Then suddenly his face cleared of anxiety. I knew him so well that I was ready for his question. Hadn't we better go on and see what's happening? Go back would have been a question. Go on was an order. So we went. I had laboriously acquired a revolver for the battle, but in my right hand I carried all the documents adjutants are supposed to carry, including even the orders for the battle, in case we ever arrived there. We knew enough by now, however, to realise that if we got anywhere at all, it would be by luck. And if we got anywhere near our destination, it would be by using our wits. 
Then suddenly, as I was trying to think if I had forgotten anything, I felt a blow and realised my arm had been shot off. I looked round and found my arm hanging somewhere at my back, but alas, no revolver. Oddly enough, I hadn't been knocked out. Indeed, I walked on a few yards looking for my arm and was really only overcome with the pleasure of finding that it was still there. Then I subsided into a shell hole and Wilson relieved me of such papers as he wanted while one of our own orderlies stayed with me and bandaged my arm with very great skill. Incidentally, sorry, very great skill, incidentally. So that was the end of my dream. No heroic exploits, no triumphs, not even a triumph of organisation. I do like him. He, he, yeah, um, so, uh, Le- Colonel Leslie Wilson and <laughs> the Insouciant, <laughs> Lieutenant Commander George Beckham, uh, they're also wounded. See, that's the thing about these things. I mean, you can have a chuckle with these slightly loose officers, but they are brave, aren't they? We discussed that. Remember when we did the poets? Uh, they are brave. Well, I, you know, I'm still thinking about somebody who, who goes looking for his arm. Oh, you know? yeah. I mean, he, he was only around his Yeah, back. no, I understand. <laughs> but, but you just think, it's incredible but you know the the Hawk and Nelson Battalion suffered terrible casualties as they uh, tried to break into the redoubt this is that whale back redoubt yeah but what's happening to the the, the Hood Battalion they're also having a difficult time because uh, their immediate supports were the Drake Battalion but they've been sucked into the fighting uh, in front of you know that in in front of the redoubt whaleback redoubt, only seventy of his reinforcements from Drake reached Freiburg, and and he knew that the Drakes alone couldn't assault the next German line. Everybody would have to go, and so the, the hoods would have to instead of going in waves, the hoods are going to have to go. And who's going to be with them? Who, Gary? Who will have to go with them? Well, amongst them's Joe Murray. He's lucky Durham fish from Durham. Nothing could happen to him. You're once more going to be ordinary seaman Joe Murray. The barrage lifted and off we go again. There was firing going on all over the place. Our own shells falling short. The jerry's firing from left and right. Our left flank was vacant. They say run, but you stumble. The shell holes. You can't go direct. You go this way and that way, picking your way around the shell holes. Sometimes there's two or three of you together. Sometimes there was nobody. They got behind or blown up. You don't know. All the time there was this fumes and the shelling going on. I, I was almost near the station. Uh, that's Bocor Station, I think. We had to go down this road and up the side. There were lots of dugouts there. Well, we got our P-bombs out and chucked them down there. As you went along, you could smell these phosphorus bombs. A rotten, lousy smell. They, that's against the law now, isn't it? Uh, international law using phosphorus. I saw some crowd over over here. I thought they were our men, but they were really prisoners. We started talking to these fellows. They couldn't understand. <laughs> what? Couldn't understand Geordie. Never. <laughs> we couldn't hear there was so much bloody noise, but a soldier knows what the point of a bayonet means. Quick, 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 get back. Some of them wouldn't behave themselves, and we shot them. No doubt about it, you'd tell a bloke. Some of them wouldn't behave themselves, wouldn't take any notice or making threatening gestures. Bang! You had no time to fool around with them. Now... This is not quite as bad as the murdering of prisoners, but it's still incredibly harsh and teetering on the edge of, uh, of what's acceptable, is what I would say. Uh, but on the other hand, they have taken the surrender and they're trying to bring them under order and they're not cooperating. And this is when they're, they're, uh, they're shooting them. That's not good, but... No. Do you understand or what do you think? Well, <laughs> it, it, 
I've not been in that situation. I can't, I, I can't comment. I, and I won't comment. I, I don't know what I'd You've do. You've made me look bad now because I have commented. Oh, good. Now, they reached the green line, but the plan was beginning to fall apart. The Hawk Battalion, now assisted by the Nelson Battalion, had still made little progress against the Welbeck Redoubt, which also impeded the advance of the Howe Battalion further to the left. The 1st and 2nd RMLI, Royal Marine Light Infantry, Fine body of man. had also suffered heavy casualties to little effect. The Hood Battalion and the assorted members of the Drake Battalion and Honourable Artillery Company... They're out out on a limb, aren't they? They're out on a limb. They're off to the right. And it was around this time that Joe Murray... Lucky Durham! Well, hitherto nicknamed Lucky Durham. What's going to happen to me? But finally, his luck runs out. Oh, it sounds bad. You're going to be on receiving Joe Murray. It's oral history. I can't die. I got blown up. There was a shell burst very near. It hit me crouched down and I got wounded in the abdomen. Little bits of shrapnel in here and a little bit of skin took off the skin and pubic hair. Nasty. <laughs> the abrasion was worse than the wound. I can remember thinking, what do I do now? And bang, something else. I don't know what. The next thing I knew, I was in Mesnel, lying on a stretcher and somebody washing the mud off my face. Oh, dear. He, he, he got back. He's back in 17. He's... Uh, He's, no, they're not bad wounds, he just recover, and of course he recovers to be interviewed by me in about 1984. Now, a message comes forward from Shute that uh, uh, owing to the continued hold-up on their left, they were to consolidate where they were. The hoods, yeah. Yep. Freiburg orders trenches dug and uh, threw back a rough line to cover his exposed left flank. To try and, uh, so uh, facing the well back, uh, covering the, the yeah. Now, overall, there's been some success that day. The Battle of the Ong, this is a small part of the Battle of the Ong, because 51st Division, and we're going to do, we've promised our friend, is it Ross, that we're going to do one on this uh, next year. Uh, they'd taken Bowman Hamel, 39th Division had taken Saint Pierre Village. Uh, Goff orders another attempt to push forward by uh, 5th Corps on 14th of November, because uh, this is promising what's happened on the, on, on the 13th. As part of this offensive, the 190th Brigade was ordered to attack Beaucourt at 0745. For all the neat orders, there's chaos on the ground, and the Honourable Artillery Company have already suffered severe casualties. Freiburg, he took control of the situation and ordered a mixed force of anyone who was available to prepare for the attack. And once more, you're going to be Captain Lionel Montague of the Hood Battalion. I saw Freiburg jump out of the trench and wave the men on. Three men followed from my trench. Then I got out with my runner with the bullets raining past me, one through my sleeve. The first wave stopped three times. Freiburg was knocked clean over by a bullet which hit his helmet, but he got up again. I and my runner dived into a shell hole and waited about a minute. I said I'd go go back and get some more men out of the trench. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And crawled ba- about 10 yards back to do so. The about a dozen men came out and I got up and waved the rest on and they all followed. So no, he wasn't skiving. He was doing the proper thing, wasn't he? We soon got into Bocor. Of course, it was absolute ruins and found that the Germans would not face our men and were surrendering by the hundred. It was an amazing sight. They came out of their holes, tearing off their equipment. I, I myself rounded up at least 50, waving my revolver making them run past me shouting at them schnell what does schnell mean gary quick now almost to their surprise the makeshift default assault force had taken Beaucourt, but now they got to defend it what happens with the germans gary well they were soon plagued by snipers and they were very aware that at any moment the germans might deluge the whole sector with shells and counter-attack pete 
and counterattack. Well, that's what that's what the Germans that's are. That's what the Germans do. And uh, Captain Lionel Montague goes on to say. So, a Hood Battalion, yeah, it was rather tricky wandering through the ruin of this village among the surrendering Germans, as one never knew if some more stout-hearted Hun would not have a shot at you or throw a bomb at you. Some did. There's one sight I shall never forget. A very nice German Spaniel sitting in the mouth of a dugout, surrounded by the dead, all his friends gone, and us strangers coming in. I can just imagine Fred, what Fred would do in those circumstances. Bugger off. I think Fred would probably bite them, but Fred would have probably bitten uh, his friends, then bitten the newcomers as well. Now, the shelling begins in earnest once the German artillerymen realise that they'd lost the village. Montague and Freiburg both take shelter in a shallow trench, lying flat out on their stomachs. And I'm going to be Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Freiburg of Hood Battalion. This is another one of those ones where there's a lovely, different account meshing together, isn't it? Because the two are right next to each other. The ground shook with the concussions and the dust and cordite fumes were choking us. We had a good many close calls and then there was a bang, a curious ringing note in my ear and I lost consciousness. When I came to, my head gave me a good deal of pain and as I lay face downwards, hot blood was dropping from my nose and chin. I thought at first my head had been smashed, but I located the wound in my neck with two dirty fingers. I looked at the man on my left. He was curled up. I moved his head and found he was grey and dead. Montague was also hit by the same shell, but not badly. He came across to me at considerable risk and bound up my neck, saying, God, how you bleed. I must get you back as quickly as possible. It's your only chance. Now, here I'm going to play the part of Montague. And what I have to do is get the 16 stone Freiburg. I just want to uh, query the 16 stone. Yeah. How much do you weigh, Gary? 17 stone. So you're just a little, little bit bigger than Freiburg. But it, it gives you the idea anyway, doesn't it? So where's he, help, where's he helping him back to? Well, he's got to get him back to the regimental aid posts and uh, the irrepressible Freiburg, he's still issuing orders and advice to all and sundry, <laughs> uh, at least until the medical officer finally gets to grips with him. Yes, that would shut him up. I bet that hurt. Now, the Germans do mass for a counterattack, uh, but, but what? How, how is the Western Front changing? So... The Germans massed for a counterattack. What is it that's slightly different? This is the Somme. The British are learning. What have they got ready? Well, they're ready with artillery, uh, and they use that to disperse the concentration of uh, German troops. And uh, at midnight on the 14th of November, the divisional relief begins, and the 63rd Division's actually withdrawn from the line. So they never had the counterattack, and they dispersed it. Wow. And Freiburg, he's later awarded the Victoria Cross for his exemplary courage. He was a brave officer. A lot of you will have heard him because he commanded the New Zealand Division in the uh, Second World War. To, to some distinction, it's quite controversial, but I think he does well. But not only was he brave, Pete, he was very capable. He was a very good capable officer. He's not loose at all, I fear. No. <laughs> no. I fear. He's good at swimming. He's not loose, I fear. Now, um, the, uh, what do you think, uh, what do you think, I mean, the, it has, a, what, what impact does the, the Somme have on the Royal Naval Division? Well, it, it finishes the work that was begun in Gallipoli uh, in stripping out the very brightest of the culturally diverse collection of officers that had so adorned the Royal Naval Division in 1915. In one of our podcasts, you refer to them as the Glitterati. Well, they've gone, haven't they? I mean, most of them are dead or, or wounded or, or have gone. Uh, 
people they're just an amazing collection of men i I'd, I'd love to write a book on them but uh, no publisher will let <laughs> well the casualties were uh, such that the uh, unique nature of the 63rd division took a severe blow on the orc well the characters are dead you've just said yeah yeah and most of the rest they, they seem to have, uh, have been wounded and many never to return during November, the division suffered more than 1,700 killed and some 2,437 wounded. Anything positive? Anything positive to say about what happens to the Royal Naval Division? Yeah, I mean, they've taken a great step forward in military efficiency in 1916. Although a certain prickliness over naval traditions remained, the division largely conformed to the required army standards. Uh, I think shoot chips away at the naval traditions, but... I think he appreciates that they did well at Bokor. Because they did do well at Bokor, didn't they? They they did. It was a terrible thing to attack, and they did do well. What happens to Shute? Well, he, he leaves the division in February 1916, and, and ultimately he achieved corps command. His replacement, uh, Major General C. Laurie, was unable to match Shute's manic energy, and many of the naval traditions of 63rd Division would just endure until the end of the war. I think Shute's interesting. I, I, there was a quote by a, a, an infantry officer who said that in the German army he would have risen much higher, but he had a certain efficiency, and, uh, and he just was inflexible and not able to cope with the Royal Naval Division's unique nature. But he was an army general. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to him, and I like the R&D. I think you can do both at this time. It's history now. Just look at them. Interesting characters. What a battle it was, though. It was. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?